Well, it's good to see you, and if you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. We want all our guests to know you're welcome to anything we have going on that pertains to you. Please feel free to come. I'm David. I'm the pastor, and uh, we want you just to feel a part of things. If you're watching online, we're glad you're doing that as well. Um, about six years ago, we recognized the need to relocate from our old campus, and we needed to do that so we could reach more people, because the purpose and mission of the church is always to reach people because they can have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we began an emphasis called REACH. It kind of culminated in us relocating out here in January of 2018 so that we could try to maximize the amount of time and effort and energy and resources we have to reach people for Christ. And we did it uh, knowing we'd have to do it in multiple phases. In terms of building, we moved in here with one-third the space that we had. And here we are at this day and age with twice as many people as we ever had then. So we know that we're kind of into this next phase of our church's life. And it's an emphasis we call impact. Because while the purpose and mission of the church is still to reach people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we know we're not going to reach everyone. But can we find a way, even if we don't reach them, can we find a way to impact their life, to make a difference, hopefully, with the purpose and the result that one day we will reach them for Jesus Christ? So we're in this kind of emphasis of our church's life now called impact. And we began it in August. We started off in the Gospel of Luke. We saw that we had to have a vision for impact, prayer for impact. Uh, we had to prepare for impact. We had to have a place to impact people. And then we kind of saw in in that fifth Sunday there, the last Sunday of August, we saw a picture of impact with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then last week we shifted gears with impact into the book of Acts, also written by Luke. Last week we saw that we're at a crossroads to impact. Next week we're going to see about a legacy to impact people's lives. And then that last Sunday we're going to see about connecting people to Jesus to impact them. Today we're in Acts chapter 2 about commitment. We have to make a commitment to impact. Today, it's called Commitment Sunday in our impact campaign. Part of our impact campaign uh, emphasis is a campaign, a capital building campaign. If you're a guest, this has nothing to do with you. We'll never ask you for any money, but today is kind of Commitment Sunday. You make the commitment, have the commitment cards, put them in the offering boxes. If if you're, this is your church home, you know, you're going to participate in the impact campaign. That happens today. If you don't have your commitment card, you can bring it next week. If you need one, they're out there uh, in the commons area. If you're a guest, only been there a couple of weeks, want to know about, more about impact. There's a table out there with emphasis uh, for impact. But today's the day that we come to talk about commitment. And before I get to the passage, this is what I want you to see. It's so important. Commitment moves us to impact. And impact leads to commitment. What I mean is this. When I become a follower of Jesus, if I am a committed follower of Christ, and I'm committed in the areas I need to be committed in, it's going to move me to want to impact people. I will tell you now, for 41 years of ministry, the reason I am a pastor is to make a difference in people's lives. That's it. To impact people for Jesus. But impacting people, hopefully, will lead them to a place of commitment to Christ. So the two work together, hand in hand. We're going to come back to that very first church in the book of Acts. Early on in the life of the church, we were there last week in that time, that 10-day time between the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And today I want to come to a place where we see that something happened there. Something happened in that place. Now, to set the scene, you need to realize that At the time of Pentecost, 
that celebration, Jewish festival, when the Holy Spirit came, was an influx of Jews by the thousands, tens of thousands of Jews came in, hundreds of thousands maybe. There were two big spring celebrations, Passover and Pentecost in the Jewish world. And very small percentage of Jews in the world at that time actually lived in Jerusalem or even Judea. Many more lived throughout the world. And it was expected at some point in their life they would come to celebrate those two festivals. And because of the way travel was, you just, it's not like today. You just can't pop into Passover. You, know, you can't just catch a flight over there or even drive the car and get there real quick. You, know, you can drive in 1,000 miles. You can drive that in, what, seven, eight hours? Depends on who you're driving. 12, 13, I don't know. You can, you can get there in half a day, a full day, whatever. But you, you, back then, you couldn't do that. You couldn't pop in, pop out, then, you know, and three or four weeks later, pop back in, pop back out. So if you came, you stayed the whole thing. And so they would stay. The, the, the influx of Jews would be there for months or weeks, staying there. And so on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, there were all these Jews from all over the world. And the Holy Spirit came. And on the day of Pentecost, this is what happened. There were 120 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem on the morning of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came. And when they went to bed that night, there were 3,000 believers. 3,000. Over the next few weeks and months, there would be 20,000 believers. Be like this. Can you imagine starting off Easter? This past spring, and there were 120 people in worship. And by Labor Day, there were 20,000 people in worship. It's amazing. And those people, that they were staying because they were learning about Jesus. They had just become Christians. Some of them, when they would go back home, they would be the only followers of Jesus in their entire community. And so they stayed to learn, and they stayed to know more. Now, what you have in the book of Acts is this beautiful picture of 30 years of the development of the church in 28 chapters. 30 years in 28 chapters. There's a lot of gaps. And so Luke will summarize the gaps with these kind of just these little sections. We call them summations. And in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, there's really two of them. One in verse 42 and then one in the following verses. So what I want to do is I want to cover these two summations to get you to see about what happened, about this commitment. And the first thing I want to share with you, though, is this. The immediate impact of the Holy Spirit coming was a massive commitment. The Holy Spirit came, 3,000 people. Being, that's massive. That's huge commitment of life to Christ. And, and then they kept coming every day and more and more. And so they stayed. And what Luke does is summarize what initially happened with that immediate impact. In verse 42, here's what Luke says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were devoted. We saw that word, that, that concept, that phrase last week in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where it says they were devoted to prayer. The idea of devotion is commitment. When you're devoted to someone or something, you are committed to it. And then you see these, these two parallel phrases. Now, we're reading from the New International Version today. It's a good version. Normally, I read from the New American Standard. Uh, so some of you automatically kind of have your NASB there to read. And the reason we're reading from the NIV and not the New American Standard today is I, uh, I, put <laughs> I copied the wrong scripture when I gave it to them. So I, I study out of several, and so I copied the wrong one. So that's no, there's no deep spiritual reason for it. Pastor just got the wrong one. But say the same thing. So what happens is they were devoted to the teaching and the fellowship. Now, when they came to Christ, 
They needed to learn about Jesus, and they had nothing to read about Jesus. There was no New Testament. The apostles were the New Testament. Nothing had been written down. I mean, it's nothing. And so they stay, and they learn at the feet of the apostles. We still learn about Jesus from the teachings of the apostles. That is the way we learn about Jesus. That's what happens right now. That's how we learn. Now, the apostles were those original guys, and they included then the brothers of Jesus who became apostles. Paul became an apostle, and guys closely connected to them, like Luke, who got his information from them, and Mark. They, were part of, they weren't apostles, but they were part of that apostolic group. And so we have these messages. This is what we learn about the New Testament. There is nothing to learn about Jesus outside of the New Testament. Anything anyone writes about, the New, about Jesus is either fraudulent or it's a commentary on the truth of the New Testament. If you want to know about Jesus, read the New Testament. That's where you learn about Jesus. So they were devoted to that, and they were devoted to the fellowship. The word fellowship, the term koinonia, in the 70s and 80s, churches popped up all over the place. They were called koinonia churches. People wanted to name themselves after Greek words to churches. That fad died out, thank goodness. I think they're using Latin now, but whatever. Just pick an English word and stick with it, you know? So they were called Koinonia Fellowship. My favorite was when they were called Koinonia Fellowship, which translated means fellowship, fellowship. That's the word means having shared, having commonality. And what they're talking about is not a fellowship, like we go to a potluck fellowship, which we as Baptists dearly love and value deeply as part of our rich Baptist tradition. It was the fellowship, the people. And then they further describe how this fellowship is, is explained. They had the breaking of bread, in prayer. Now, that means there were so many of them, and, and listen, they weren't like they were all employed. They were all unemployed. I mean, all these people were there. They, they had jobs back home, but they didn't have jobs there. Can you imagine a church full of unemployed people? I can't imagine what that would be like. Drive me nuts. They were all unemployed, so they would eat together. And, and, and they're breaking their bread. And they probably had communion or the Lord's Supper as well. And some scholars say, well, that's what it means. They had Lord's Supper. Jesus had just given them the Lord's Supper a few weeks earlier. They hadn't developed their understanding of that. So they would eat, they would teach, they would probably have communion, and they would pray. And that was the early church. And that was the immediate impact of this commitment, a massive commitment. They worked their life together. And they began to grow, and they began to move. And so over the next few months, things began to happen. And so what Luke does is he gives us another summation right after that, telling other things going forward. And in this summation, here's what I want you to see. The resulting impact of this commitment was growth in the early church. People came to Jesus. And that's what we want, people to come to Jesus. So what we see is the result and people coming to Christ. Verse 43 then says this, everyone was filled with awe, all the believers, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. The word all is the word for fear. For a believer, we're not afraid of God or Christ. We're in awe of him. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, you should be afraid. But there was an awe because there was wonders and signs. The apostles were doing these. Um, back then, especially, at the early set of the outset of the church, the miracles and the signs gave evidence of proof of something new was happening. We don't, we don't need that today. We have the New Testament. We have the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not to say the miraculous didn't occur when important there was. In fact, 
there is in the Bible four periods of miraculous activity, two in the Old Testament, two in the New. In the Old Testament, surrounding Moses, there was a lot of miraculous activity, and then surrounding Elijah and Elisha, there was a lot of miraculous activity, very little outside of it. There was some, I get it, Joshua and Isaiah, a little bit, but that's where it was. In the New Testament, obviously it was Jesus, but also early on, the apostles. When you get to the end kind of of Acts, you don't see all of that same number of miraculous activities you do early on. The need for it when it's great. And, and miracles, we, we need to be very careful today. I hear so many things and I read so many people talk about this miracle and that miracle. Most of what people describe as miracles aren't miracles, just God working. God works all the time. I mean, God, because he's God, is always working in our life. That's not a miracle. That's just God doing what God does. Miracles it really fall in two categories. It's, it's God breaking the laws of, of nature or God doing something in such a way that it's inexplicable except that God had to do it at that time. For instance, Jesus raising someone from the dead is a miracle, breaking the laws of nature. In the, in the Old Testament, in the plagues, when Mo, all those plagues came in Egypt with Moses, the, the plagues weren't uncommon. They had locust plagues. It's the timing of it and the intensity of it as one followed the other. That's what made it miraculous. I say that because people talk about stuff today that's not really miraculous. It's just God working. Let me give you an example. My last church, there was a lady, her daughter and her son-in-law were having marital problems. They were about to have a divorce, and they made it, they reconciled and worked it out. She said, it's a miracle. No, it's not. It's good. It's God's working. Let me tell you something. People reconcile their marriage life all the time. Some of them do without God. Even lost people make their marriages work. I mean, not getting divorced is a miracle. It happens every day. Every day I wake up and my wife decides not to divorce me that day. That's not a miracle. Does it mean God was working? Yeah, God works. God saves marriages all the time. It's not a miracle. If you do it all the time, it's not a miracle. Now, when I was at Park Hills, there was a little two-year-old who had a hole in his heart, a little boy. And he was not going to live long, and they weren't going to be able to grow up without surgery. So they were getting ready to do the surgery. They were all prepared. And <laughs> the time for the surgery, they came, did some more tests, and the, and the hole in the heart was gone. And the doctors couldn't figure it out. Time after time, they looked at things. It took several days of testing. Finally, they brought the parents in and said, your son's cured. He's healed. I need surgery. And, and they said, what happened? They said, there is no human explanation. This is literally a miracle. Well, that's a miracle. I say that to understand what happens in our church life is God working, and we praise him for it. Doesn't make it miraculous. Verse 44 says, all the believers were together, had everything in common. That word common, another firm of the word koinonia, they were together. We saw that last week. They were united. Now, instead of 120, there were thousands of them. They were everywhere in Jerusalem. They were all coming together. Verse 45 says this, and they were selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone as he had need. All those thousands of people, they were hungry. They needed a place to stay. They needed a way to help them. And so those who had the means would help, those, would help everybody out. It doesn't mean everybody sold everything. We know in the next verse that they met in people's homes. It doesn't mean you got divested all your wealth because if you got rid of all your wealth, you would become poor. But it means that they gave intentionally. And I want you to hear this. They gave with the purpose. And there is in this verse a principle about giving that we sometimes overlook. And this is not a, a sermon about giving money, but I want to point this out. Your giving to the church should always be with intentionality and purpose. You ought to expect us to spend your money. And put it from my perspective. Debbie and I tithe. We more than tithe. We made more than tithe. And then, you know, the, the impact campaign, I've already, we already turned in our commitment card. We got that. It's there. I wrote it in ink. Can't be changed. We're giving it. 
okay? When I give money to the church, I expect the church to spend my money. I don't expect the church to take my money and put it in a CD somewhere and draw interest. If you're going to save my money, I'll keep it and save it myself. That's, for that reason, I love to spend money. I am so good at spending your money. The treasurer of the church is back there going, oh, God, he's horrible at it. I'll spend money we don't have because we're so good at it. I say this because I want you to trust us. Listen, yeah, if you look at our bank accounts, do we have a lot of money? Yeah, but it's all assigned. A ton of money we have, over half a million dollars is set aside for phase two. And we do have to, because of the world we live in, have reserve funds in case there's a catastrophe. We got a mortgage to pay, and you got to pay my salary. The rest of the guys will let go, but you got to pay my salary. <laughs> we look at the order of the letterhead. We pay in order of the letterhead. That's why my name comes first. And yes, we're, and sometimes, you know, we know we're going to have a shortfall here and there. But if you look, things are assigned, all the money is assigned. This year, we're going to bring in more money than we're going to spend. We're going to have a surplus. We're going to assign all that money to be spent. I promise you, it'll be spent sometime. I'm telling you that because that's the principle. They gave so that they wouldn't hold on to it, but they would share it and help. Verse 46 says this about worship. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. I'm going to stop there. They were in the temple. They had nowhere else to meet for as a mass group. They started off with 100, then a couple of 100,000, then there were 10,000 plus. The temple was the place where the people who put Jesus went to work every day. And this only lasted really for a short time because you see in starting in chapter 3, there starts to be problems. Can you imagine you're the high priest, Caiaphas, you come to work, you're looking over and say, why are all those people over there? Oh, there's the followers of the, that guy, Jesus, we killed and supposedly came back to life. They're meeting. I mean, that's where they were meeting. It was formal worship. It also meant that they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They had informal worship. They came in their homes. They had joy, being glad. They were joy. They were sincere hearts. It means simplicity of hearts. It was a time just of celebration. They celebrated their faith together. It's an amazing summation of what the church ought to be. The church ought to be a place where we come and we celebrate every week. We celebrate Jesus. Verse 47 went on to say this. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And there are latitude of the number. Every day, those who are being saved. All the time we talk about the church exists. We exist. Everything we do at this church is to honor God and get people to Jesus. Why? Because that's what the church did. Praising God, honoring God, glorifying God. And they had favor with Jews and Gentiles. They all had favor with them. And they added every day, it says, to their numbers, those who were being saved. This is a beautiful summation of the church. And we say, why does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit was working, yeah. God did all that, yeah. But he used people, people committed. They had a commitment to God, they had a commitment to each other, and they had a commitment to other people. And we see in this summation, we see in this summation the heart of the Christian life. They worshiped, and they served, and they were in community. Those three together are discipleship. Discipleship isn't just teaching. All too often, people talk about discipleship. They talk about teaching. No, no. Discipleship is the whole life spun together. The result of that was they were reaching people for Jesus. Evangelism is the byproduct of worship, service, and community. You got to go tell people, yeah. 
But the ones who do the best job of telling others, worship, serve, and they're part of the fellowship. Something happened back then. And they changed the world. Now, I'm going to share with you a second thing. It's simply this. Something can happen here. Something happened there. Something can happen here. We're not going to reach 3,000 people in one day. I don't think that for a moment. Nor do we want people coming and living in each other's homes. If you're destitute and you come and say, can I stay and live in your home? The answer is no. What I'll do is I'll take you across the street over there while they're framing them, and I'll help you find a place to stay for the night that's covered and sheltered. And the next morning, you come up here, and the staff guys will give you some food. No, you can't stay at my house. I'll put you up somewhere. It'll be at Joe's, Joe Andrews' house is where I'll put you up. But I'll put you up somewhere. He's always bragging about how much room he has. Well, okay. If you need a place to stay, go to Joe's house. If you can't know where it is, we'll put his address in the map up here on the screen a little bit later. Yeah. No, but things, something can happen. So here's what I want you to see. We're, if, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, and all of you may not be followers of Jesus, I get this. But the follower of Jesus is committed to three areas of growth. The result of this commitment is reaching people. You're going to be committed to three areas of growth. Worship, service, and community. The result of this is reaching people. So here, let me should put it to you this way. Commitment moves us to worship. When you are committed to Christ and to growing as his follower, you are moved to worship. Worship is who we, it's part of who we are. I mean, we, we want to worship. We want to come before God every day. We want to do it in, in our own private life. Yeah, I do that. But we need to come publicly. We should look forward to coming to worship together. I, you know, I don't hear this much anymore. I think this is kind of passe. Once in a while I hear it. But I remember hearing so often, God said, well, I don't need to come to church to worship God. Oh, yes, you do. You know why you need to? Because that's what they did in the New Testament. And you're not better than anybody who led in the New Testament. In the New Testament, they came together to worship. In fact, they, they went to church every day. We, don't, we just asked you for like one hour a week, man. I mean, they went every day. But so there's the formal, but there's also the informal worship, yes, so that private time. But you got to worship. You should be moved to that. Commitment compels us to serve. We are compelled to serve one another, to serve God. You ought to want to serve. And it doesn't, ideally you serve in the church, but it doesn't have to be just in the church. You can serve outside the church. And let me clarify. I'm not talking about, you know, things that you may do, you know, for yourself or for, you know, community involvement. You know, coaching your kid's soccer team isn't what we're talking about. You coach your kid's soccer team so that they can probably have a losing record is what's going to happen. And you coach your kid's soccer team because you want your kid to be a star. That's what it happens all the time. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the Lions Club, Optimist Club, Pessimist Club, whatever club you're a part of. We're not talking about that. That was a good club. That's not it. If you, if you, you know, if you are a part of the, of the Baptist Children's Home, or if you, if you, you know, go in a part of a group that ministers at the nursing home or hospitals and homeless, that's fine. That's great. That's serving. But serving in the church, too. That's why we have worship an hour, serve an hour. We want you to serve. Find a place to serve. Commitment draws us to community. It draws us to be with other people groups. Primarily we do that through our connect groups, our small groups. Some people uh, will still meet, we still have Sunday school classes kind of, it's hard to have them here, we don't have much space. Uh, every hour we have worship except 12:15. but at 8:30, 9:45, and 11 there's a class meeting in that room. But most of it it's in community groups. And that's how we do it. And if you aren't a part of a community group you need to be. In fact, I think after the service there's several tables out there that'll have some places you can go to get connected or you just get online or get with Joe. We're spending September formulating those groups of community. You need that. You need worship. You need service. You need community. You need that life. And here's why. Because worship, service, and community prepares us to reach people. 
And if we can't reach them, to impact them. It prepares us. And if we can't reach them, to reach them so that they become followers of Jesus, at least we can impact their life. And if I can impact your life today, maybe tomorrow I'll reach you to be a follower of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. And that's what we are to do. That is the New Testament model. That's what we see in Acts. We see that in some shape, form, and fashion all the time in the letters. That's what Jesus did. Do we still need to go witness and share our faith? Well, yeah, of course. You still need to go to people and tell them about Jesus. But hopefully the people you're telling about Jesus are the people that you've made an impact in their lives so they'll trust you. Listen, we're not going to ask you when this subdivision is built or that subdivision to go knock on the doors of strange people and say, hey, here I am. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. We're not, that is, that, come on, that doesn't work. Oh, once in a while it'll happen and someone will tell me, like, okay, somebody you know, works once in a while. So go, if you want to do that, fine. Here's what I know works. If we are involved in worship, service, and community, involve ourselves in people's lives, we can reach them. I told you this before, I get asked from time to time for other pastors and preachers and denominational people, especially now in the life of our church, what's your evangelism strategy? And I say, I don't have evangelism strategy. I just do what they did in the New Testament, which is this. Seems to work. Okay. Can we be better? Always could be better. That's not the point. The point is, in your life, you will be involved in worship, service, and community. You'll reach people. You'll impact their life. And here's the thing to remember. Impact is always about commitment. Because commitment leads to impact. Everything we're doing that we call in that broad category of impact is so that we can get people to be committed. You committed. And then people who aren't followers of Jesus to be committed. Because commitment brings people to a place of impact. They go together. And that's where we need to be. In my office over there, there's a book written by a guy I went to high school with. And on the shelf, it just so happens that next to his book is my book. And as I was looking at it the other day, I said, that's kind of strange because I wrote my book with him in mind and other people I went to high school in mind. Because I realized that a lot of them I'll never see again. They were an important part of my life once. They're my, some of these have been friends since I was a child. But our life, we may never cross paths again. I may never have another chance. So I wanted to be sure that I could do something, somehow, someway, maybe, just maybe God, to impact their life. Because ultimately what I want to do is make a difference. All of us should want to make a difference in people's lives. All of us should want to impact the lives of people around us. And all I really ask you to do is just make a commitment to impact, whatever that is. Maybe for some of you today, it's worshiping or serving or being involved in community. You're not quite there yet, and I get it. All of us take our journey a little bit different. My journey is different than yours, and I get it. But we would love for you to make a commitment today. More important, the Lord wants you to make a commitment today that you'll be involved in worship and service and community. Get there. You've got to put the effort in. You've got to make a commitment, and then you've got to go do it. 
We want you to make a commitment to reach people. That they will come to a saving relationship with Jesus. And that may means that you have to make a commitment to impact their life somewhere. You, I, for some of you, you have someone you've been trying to reach and you haven't been able to. Can you impact them? Can you impact their life? And maybe that's all your commitment needs to be. God, let me make an impact in that person's life. Some of you may want to become a part of our church. Formerly, we had people in the last service join our church. We'd love for you to join our church. But even if you don't formally join, if this is your church, then make a commitment that I'm going to impact people's lives through this church. By my commitment here, I'll make an impact. But the most important impact of all is the impact that needs to be made in the lives of those who don't follow Jesus. We want you to be impacted. We want you to be reached. And if you've never trusted Christ to save you, today, you can give your life to Jesus as I speak. When we sing in just a moment, we're going to be standing here. If you want to come for any reason, you want to pray, if you want to join, for whatever it may be, we invite you. But understand this, when you leave here today, make a commitment to be committed to impact. So Father, it is to you we come and ask you through your Holy Spirit to work in our life and ask you through your Spirit to touch our lives so that we can impact people. We will never be like that church. It can never again capture that early church. Father, we can learn from them. And we can see what it means for us to share a life of worshiping, serving, and community. That's discipleship. And in that discipleship, Father, reach people for Jesus. To impact them. And so I, I pray, God, by the, the power that belongs only to the Holy Spirit who came that day so long ago to the life of the church and still is with the church today by his power and in the glorious name of Christ our Lord, we will make a commitment to impact. Amen and amen. Would you stand? We'll be here at the front.